0: Wonderful, Tanshi, bonjour. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 9 of Research Time. Today we will be talking about social justice in educational frameworks. So I'm really excited to host this conversation today just because I feel like it's extremely timely. And the person that will be joining us today is extremely knowledgeable and very passionate, very determined. So I'm very excited uh, to hold this conversation uh, with with her today. So here she is. I'm just going to add her here. Ah, Tanshi, Diana, how are you doing? Hi. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really well. It's so good to see you.
1: I know, I haven't seen you I think since March.
0: Yes, yes. I think it was for your birthday party.
1: Yes, yeah, my virtual birthday party, which <laughs> I think was very ahead of its time. Yes, I think so too. <laughs>
0: uh, and how have you been?
1: I've been good. Honestly, I've been working remotely. We both just finished school, which is exciting. So honestly, just transitioning into being a regular working young adult and not balancing school at the same time. So <gasps> that's that's almost like a sigh of relief you know being
0: being done right like it feels almost like it doesn't feel real in a way um i guess with me like i ended up taking on another semester i don't think i told you yet but i ended up taking up another semester just because of the root of my research and the way it's going right Mm -hmm. now so it's taking longer than expected which is fine just because it's all a part of the journey and a part of the process so now it's supposed to be december 2020 now so we'll see
1: but well, that's still exciting.
0: <laughs> the light is near, I see it. <laughs> but I'm extremely happy for you, and I think you're going to make an excellent and beautiful and wonderful impact on the world
1: uh, when Thank you. that happens, right? I appreciate that. And I am really excited about your research. I'm
0: excited too. I think it's going to be really, really, really fun. Really good. Really good changes. So we'll definitely see. I hope it does make an impact in some capacity. So we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. But um, yeah, so I guess we'll we'll get started here. But it was so lovely uh, to have you on here, Diana. Um, so, folks, uh, before we do get started with this conversation, uh, we're just going to do a land acknowledgement uh, because uh, Diana and I are both on different places. We're both going to uh, acknowledge the lands that we're both on. Um, so, for me, I'm on Treaty 7, uh, which is of the Nesitapii, which is a Blackfoot Confederacy, which uh, includes uh, Siksaga, Gainai, Bagani, uh, Sitina, and Iahe which is Stony Nakoda. And uh, the territory is also home to Métis Nation Region 3, which is the Métis Nation I belong to, along with my ancestral ties to Treaty 1, of course. So finally, with all of these nations, indigenous and non who live, who work, who play, who steward on this land, it is all to support conversations, conversations like the ones that are also occurring between you and I today. I think it really does make a, uh, a major impact uh, to the world, and I think it's uh, it's very important to hold these forms of conversations. So it's really important to, to to acknowledge that. So thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. And I am currently located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Lunapewak, and Atawandran peoples, and they're all on lands connected with the London London Township and Sombra Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant wampum. So this land really continues to be home to diverse Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, Métis, and Inuit folks whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, within the podcast, too, I know that there's various folks from various locations and it's always so humbling to hear where everyone's located and being able to hear all the different nations and how we're all still working towards the same goal, which is very impactful and very beautiful. So thank you very much for for being able to acknowledge the land. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So Diana, you're with me today um so you and i met in september 2019 before pre-covid
1: and (laughs) (laughs) pre-covid very different world
0: (laughs) and we met in class and your voice your passion your just who you are we ended up connecting just so easily and just so profoundly and i'm very content that you're still in my life even within Uh, virtually distanced but you know it's it's still wonderful to to know you and uh, I'm very 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 happy to know you. Uh, So yes that's how you and I met was through the University of Ottawa of course and uh, and that's wonderful and uh, would you be willing to to share uh, who you are what you're all about things you're working on what you're working
1: towards? Yeah, absolutely. So as Madeline said, my name's Diana and I just finished graduate school at the University of Ottawa. And that's how we met. We met in class when I think we both looked at each other when a professor might have said something that, uh, I don't know, it was it's kind of odd. And we kind of had that moment where we both looked at each other and we're like, are we hearing the same thing? Um, and before graduate school, both of us were student union executives. And so we had that experience in common. Um, and it's really interesting when you meet people who have had that similar experience elsewhere and you just kind of click. Um, And right now I have been working in campaigns and communications. So I work for a lobbying organization that represents post-secondary students all over the country. Um, And we lobby predominantly for free education, but also work on indigenous education issues. And right now I am working on an anti-racism file, which is very topical. Um, doing training and development work um, in terms of anti-racism and also for racialized leaders in particular, which is often um, left out of our conversations or our mainstream conversations about anti-racism is actually giving racialized people space to strategize and be in community with each other. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. So generally work in the areas of youth leadership development, campaigns and communications. So that's me. You're phenomenal. Like,
0: if there's any voice to be included in the perspectives and just the awareness and the determination you honestly hold, I am just amazed of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you're making so many impacts. Like, I, I, yes, I'm just like speechless by you, honestly.
1: (laughs) I'm so awkward with (laughs) compliments. I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs)
0: i'm happy you do (laughs) no it's uh it sounds very rewarding and it sounds very timely of course which also alludes to our conversation that we're also going to be holding today too within the capacities of being able to talk about these notions especially within such a such a perspective filled time i feel uh, within mm-hmm. the COVID time even because it's allowing us to really be reflective and really thoughtful with our actions and with our perspectives. And it's almost like a re, a rejuvenation, I think, of a lot of emotionalities and perspectives. So it's it's mm-hmm. definitely a process. It's definitely a good process and a very exhausting process too, I'm definitely noticing. But important work nonetheless and self-care is also very key. How have you been self-caring?
1: um honestly i've been meditating Mm -hmm. i didn't think i would like it so funny story about meditation i actually purchased a year-long subscription to a meditation app last september by accident um i think i wanted to like listen to one of the like night meditations and then i like you had to buy the expansion pack in order to access it middle of the night fingerprint and that's how the purchase goes through so i kind of let the meditation thing slide for a few months and then when the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. I kind of picked it up again in May and then I have like a good streak going with meditation right now. So that's been really helpful Mm -hmm. and honestly now that we're done school I'm reading fiction, so...
0: (sighs) I can't wait to just read for leisure again because everything that I'm reading is articles and research-based and I feel like I don't have any time to really be really immersed within that novel experience. So I'm very happy for
1: you to be able to experience that. I'm very jealous, actually, that you get to experience I'm excited. (laughs) September will I mean, December will be here sooner rather than later. It's so true.
0: Like the way that even like March to right now in August happens, like a blink of an eye, like. Yeah don't even know where the time's gone. So it's very, uh, I, I appreciate that, thank you. And again, that's such a wonderful experience that you're, you're going through with that meditation. I think it's very powerful and uh, I wish I had more time to actually do it. I, I don't know if I've done it too often, but I feel like sometimes in my brain, it just goes into that self-reflective mode where I don't think mm-hmm. of anything stressful. I just kind of think and allow my brain to go to places sometimes. So that's really wonderful that, that you shared that as a resource, though. I think that's actually very important. And maybe folks who are listening, maybe that could be some something that could uh, support you within your efforts also for self, uh, self-care here. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing all that. Wonderful. Okay, so as we get started, too, um, we're going to talk about uh, an article. Um, and this article is uh, by... Uh, two researchers named Deidre M. Kelly and Gabriella Mins-Brandis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, and I hope that I am. Um, so, the article that is being read is called Social Justice Needs to be Everywhere. Um, imagining the Future of Anti-Oppression Education in Teacher Preparation. And this is a Canadian-based article. Um, Diana, would you like to explain what the article is all about?
1: Yeah, so it's so interesting because this article was published in 2010 and it really does feel like we're having the same conversation right now with regards to social justice. But it's about a teacher training program in BC um, and I think there were around 36 teachers and this program took place between 1998 and 2005. Um, and it was talking about really social justice training for like K to twelve teachers and like secondary like secondary school teachers um, doing social studies in particular, um, just as an example of a subject. And they went through things like. Um, scenario training they talked about unpacking power and privilege so it really does sound like a longer kind of anti-oppression curriculum for folks familiar with like anti-oppression training and the way that that's approached where you talk about like privilege and positionality and like your own um identity Um, And then going into how that relates to society, um, it really kind of discusses that process of of teacher education. And this is like a special cohort of teachers. Um, And it's really interesting because when this article was written and the time frame of this program, you would think that some of this would have been more mainstream by now. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of the article. Teacher training, social justice teacher training in B.C.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing uh, what it's all about and also the folks who were included with it which are the educators and also I think it also yes. raises connections to teacher candidates as well in some capacities yes. and teacher candidate candidates are the folks who are just about to be educators um, going through that process and being able to be inside practicum frameworks meaning you're mm-hmm. in a classroom and you're with your mentor teacher and you get to teach uh, from 50 to 100% of what the teacher teaches so that you have that experience to then become a teacher within the following years. So Mm -hmm. it's very extensive, it's very personal, and unfortunately with that experience too, you're very limited in what you can potentially do depending on your mentor teacher, because Mm -hmm. your mentor teacher, it's their classroom. So there's only so much you can do in regards to pedagogy, in regards to what you actually want to be able to facilitate. And the article also raises connections to it in that way too. So from my experience, at least with being a teacher candidate too, it's not that it was a bad experience, but I felt very, I did feel supported, which was great um, within my capacity and within my abilities, but I found it Mm -hmm. to be very, Challenging at the same time too because again, it wasn't my classroom, so I couldn't change the desks. I couldn't do anything with the environment and So I really appreciate how the article also connects it to the teacher candidates in that way because it's actually very fundamental for their educational progression and I think um so I appreciate you You also uh, bringing it up in and, and that way too for, for educators in general. So um, I guess that kind of alludes to what we also found interesting from the article. So I was wondering what you
1: also thought was pretty substantial within the article. I think the most substantial thing, especially because of the moment that we're in right now, is the fact that the conversation that we think we're having right now is not new. Um, this article starts or in terms of time period it starts in 1998 so before the 2000s Um, and we're now past the 2010s when social justice language in education and elsewhere started to hit mainstream via pop feminism and when social media and the hashtag emerged that's kind of when some of these concepts became more widely accessible to people in non-academic spaces So I think it's just really interesting to see people kind of trying to test these concepts um, before the advent of social media. I think that that's something that was of particular interest to me, um, especially because we're all inside right now. So I think social media has been a frame of reference for me just because of the COVID era that we're in, where we're all hyper online. Um, So to see actual and and also i think we'll probably get into chatting about the challenges that were raised in the article but i just think it was really interesting that some of the resistance and the feelings that this type of of method brought up for teacher candidates doesn't sound all that it it just doesn't sound outlandish that people feel that way given some of the conversations around social justice that we're having right now
0: i Thank you very much um, and I also believe the same findings too. I think it's not a new conversation, it's a very ongoing and continuous conversation and articles like this or articles that have also come before it as well paves the way to hold these conversations even still to this day and for it to now in these capacities in these ways for us to then be able to talk about it, to note it, to name it for what it is, and now being able to advocate for it to be inside of our classrooms um, is very telling, and is very telling to the progression I hope that society's actually taking right now. So it's very important for, for the limitations, as you also mentioned too within the, within the article, is also really good to reflect upon because it also allows us to see deeper lenses. And perspectives and acknowledgments mm-hmm. to move forwards together hopefully in these ways so I think that's um, it's very telling ultimately and I, I, I did also come to similar findings as you did as well which is good <laughs> so yeah. so with that too um, do you think it would also be good to maybe define even if there is a way to define what what anti-racism means
1: or anti I, I think so yeah it's so interesting because it really depends on the on the context that these terms are being used in but i know anti-oppression broadly means like active opposition to systems of oppression so anti-racism i think does fall under the banner of anti-oppression Um, For anti-racism, it's about active resistance, um, regardless of the context that you're in, to racism and also being committed to dismantling systems of oppression. So that can look like organizing against racism. That can look like campaign building. That can look like how you engage with other people in your workplaces. Um, And anti-oppression also kind of broadly encompasses being against different types of oppression like homophobia or transphobia or gender-based violence broadly um, in tandem with racism Um, and i think i think that really i think that covers it as like a base definition
0: thank you thank you for explaining it and i think it also allows for folks who are new to listening to the podcast or folks who are just listening with us right now, so that you also have an awareness of what the topics we're actually talking about today actually mean uh, within the ways that we're talking about them within. So in regards to education, that's our focus, at least for today. Although there's so many different facets of these conversations, of these notions that can be done. But that mm-hmm. that's just our focus for today is just education and and that's because of the the article in itself and what we're wanting mm-hmm. to support, I guess, or advocate for or share knowledge with and for to whom and and mm-hmm. I think that educational piece is is really key. So thank you very much for, for defining it and sharing what it's all about and what we're going to be talking about and that then also alludes to the next question which will be um what does anti-oppression education and action taking mean to you
1: yeah that's a really great question um i think that's really interesting cuz i actually spent my afternoon doing anti-oppression training with some folks um and i think anti-oppression education can mean a number of things if we're talking about the actual education system and the K to 12 system which is the context that this article is situated in, then we're talking, for example, about teacher training. We're talking about what happens in schools when it comes to not just, it's not a matter of accommodating differences, but it's like, how do we imagine or reimagine what schools look like when we have people from diverse lived experiences existing in the same place? Um, and anti-oppression education gives us the knowledge of systems and how they might show up differently in the lives of students. And that means like, how do you cater your services and your policies and your supports better for students with the knowledge of anti-oppression in mind? So that's the action taking piece of, of anti-oppression education. Um, and if we're talking about it outside of the context of the K-12 to system, which I think that's where a lot of people who are now outside of school are having this conversation. For example, it looks like maybe people seeking out anti-oppression education and resources and breakdown of theory online. Um, Maybe it looks like the way people we see engaging on the platform that you and I are on right now, Instagram um, and later Spotify, um, <laughs> how people are engaging with maybe audiovisual resources that break down larger concepts of, of oppression and systems of oppression. And then kind of distilling that down a little bit, like how do these different systems actually show up? Um, so that's kind of what anti-oppression education means to me in terms of actually taking a large concept like white supremacy and then breaking it down to racism and then breaking down the different manifestations of racism. That's an Mm. example of anti-oppression education where a person has a particular experience when they move through the world and not really knowing that there's maybe names and terms attached to those experiences.
0: I'm just taking that all in. It's very profound and it's very meaningful understanding to unpack. And I think with it Mm -hmm. too, it's, it's very personal. And I think folks really do need to take the time to go through these understandings of what you know, white supremacy means what? Mm-hmm. Anti-racism means what? How do I then become anti-racist? How do I, how do I, uh, you know, support understandings of you know feminism? How do I get to these notions of these understandings? And it takes time. It just takes so much time, and it's not going to happen overnight. And that's mm-hmm. why I think with with educational means in this way it's just very personal journey and it needs to be personal until it gets to the collective piece because that's where Mm -hmm. change can then happen but in order for you to then dismantle that change for yourself you really have to take that mirror you have to look at yourself and you need to be able to acknowledge maybe I've accidentally been racist in this way maybe I've accidentally done this or done that and it's being able to acknowledge okay so if I did do it How do I move forward? What can I do to be better? Mm -hmm. What can I do to move forward? Mm -hmm. And that's probably the most difficult piece of it all is to take that mirror and to actually look at yourself and then to move forward from it. And that can be discomforting. That could be scary. That could be Mm -hmm. very challenging for folks. So I think with this conversation, I hope that folks can really acknowledge these pieces where there's a lot of people that want to support, that want to help, that want to uh, encourage this learning journey, this process and to be able to then take the action because that is the notion of action taking is to be able to do better, to act better, to encourage other perspectives, other voices, other spaces. So with this as well, it's very important to to acknowledge privilege as well mm-hmm. so for example like uh for for me i'm white passing indigenous woman so because of my almost duality i have to raise voices perspectives for folks within my community but then i almost have the ability to be able to share that voice because of the spaces that i'm in and the the ears that are listening to me because of the appearance of the way that I look so for me Mm -hmm. for me to be an advocate I need to ensure that it's not just my face and my space being just me and being my voice I have to ensure and I advocate for all the other folks who also need to be at that table who also need to be there and really fight for that so if that means to give up my seat for someone else I would do it I would actually do it but it's the other folks inside the room too. What would they then do, and how do they actually mm-hmm. to also make space?
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think you raised a lot of important points in that statement. And I'm really thinking about how our conversation around privilege looks like, um, and also the notion of positionality, which is definitely how your identity allows you to move through certain spaces. And I think that that has come up. Um, because the nuances of of race and of gender, among other systems um, and and social categories, make those conversations a lot more complex. So it's so interesting how we balance as educators, making sure that these concepts are digestible while also making sure that we don't strip them of nuance either. Mm. And I think it's a really delicate balance um, that educators are in. And I think that the article definitely does touch on some of that when it gets to discussing some of the challenges with the model that they used. Right.
0: And I agree too. I think that there's so many notions to consider, nuances to consider, and that kind of leads us to our next question as well, which is, anti-oppression is at the forefront of this article. Um, As such, why is social justice important to enact within the classroom and overall educational environments?
1: Yeah, that is a wonderful question. And I think that is it's interesting because I started thinking about this question again when I had seen a video pop up online and it was like a group of of a multiracial group of children who were having a tea party and they were being filmed for some type of like cute BuzzFeed style online segment. Um, And one of the other children actually like used a microaggression Mm -hmm. against like one of the black kids that was sitting at the table. And I don't think these kids were like, I think they were less than like six years old. Um, And I recognize the power of education because racism starts early um, and kids are very aware of differences. I know that there's like a large body of study that says that kids are aware of, of differences um and their own identity with regards to race and gender like by the age of three and i think when we talk about public education and the k-12 system just how much school shapes people's values there's like the normative values part of of school and kind of how it enforces and teaches you what is normal and what is the standard and what is good and what is bad um and then there's that whole notion of hidden curriculum which is those, those extra things that are being transmitted to students when they're going through very standard, regular, everyday subjects. So, I think anti oppression education and social justice in the classroom, because um, as I had said before, like school is really the first place that a lot of people are socialized and where a lot of people are socialized outside of the values that they learn at home. Mm -hmm. So, sometimes what you learn at school does put you in conflict with your own cultural values at home. Um, And by centering social justice, I think that it teaches students more ethical ways to move through the world and to relate to each other. Um, And I think that we also have to recognize that educational environments can be really hostile towards like non-white students. Um, That's another point, and we see that come up when we have conversations around streaming, for example, which was a really big conversation in the Toronto District School Board, meaning that in, I think, grade nine or grade 10, they start, um, they start, encouraging certain students to pursue academic courses, which of course lead you to university. That's the university track. And then applied courses, which is the, um, which leads you to colleges and then there's a locally developed stream which leads you to the, which uh, leads you to the trades. Um, yeah, so these students oftentimes you're seeing racialized students, black students in particular, be steered towards not pursuing post-secondary education. And centering social justice in education also has implications for policy making um, as well. When we see that conversation around like the racialized nature of something like streaming, which on its face seems like a neutral practice, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things in the article is that teaching broadly in education, these aren't neutral practices, but they're very political in Mm -hmm. nature. And that was something that they tried to convey to the teacher candidates in the article.
0: They did and I thought that it was really well done and especially within the time again that it was too, it's 2010. So these mm-hmm. are conversations too that are being brought up even to this day being 2020. So with that as well, I think it's it's also the awareness piece, the talking about it piece and because I don't think a lot of folks actually know about the streaming and the limitations of streaming and the way that it actually oppresses mm-hmm. folks. Uh, for streaming and it almost provides this Self-doubt this this lack of confidence or this this I'm going to choose for you because I don't believe you could choose for yourself and that's because of you.
1: exactly
0: and mm-hmm. That's very It's just wrong. That's not what it should be occurring so that's why the the article 2 really does prose that really critical lens for the students, uh, for the teacher candidates, for the educators, to think about who is inside the classroom, who are inside the administration roles, who are the folks who are actually making the choices, who are the folks in power, mm-hmm. and what do they look like? Like what what are their what are their ethnicities? Uh, who's making the major decisions, and whose perspectives are they actually including within that framework?
1: Hmm. So.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a, a major time, I think, right now in regards to the reflective practices of our educational system, and I think it's painful. Mm-hmm. I think it's needing to occur, and it's good that conversations again like this are occurring in order for that change to at least be recognized and acknowledged that mm-hmm. it does to be occurring too. And this isn't like to say that all people who are inside these positions are bad people that's not what is occurring but instead it's actually questioning the systems that they're within and to be critical for their own selves to then be able to to further understand these notions because again like it is a very personal process um this work in itself is very personal so it does need to come from within in order for it to then be external
1: mm-hmm. i agree
0: <laughs> thank you um, so then that leads us to our next question here, too, which is social justice is multi layered, as we can definitely uh, conclude. Uh, but with that, though, um, it makes folks feel discomfort when enacted. Um, do you believe that this is an important emotion to feel? How can this uh, discern uh, right, white fragility or support anti racist action taking?
1: That is a really great question, um, especially bringing in the language of white fragility, which we all know is the topic of that best-selling book, which a lot of folks unfortunately haven't read. Um, I think that there is an initial moment where there is that feeling that people want to take action and do something. And then comes the un- uncomfortable process of actually thinking through whether or not you have privileges, for example, that you might need to give up. I think when you are are actually delving into anti-racism and then in a more radical way, for example, decolonization or questions of dismantling, which I think are not in the same realm of anti-racism, even though sometimes people like to put them together. Um, I think there's a lot. It, it, I think anti-racism arguably is a comfortable space Mm. to be in like it's a comfortable space it does maybe sometimes bring up uncomfortable feelings but that language and the way that we're gonna see it be deployed come September which is in a few weeks can you imagine um (laughs) we're gonna see the way that that language gets deployed To thwart a conversation where I think people are really starting to wake up to the realities of and and not even to sound pessimistic but just how bad things can be for like we are still in the middle of a pandemic um, even though it doesn't feel that way in some in some parts we're still in a pandemic and students are being sent back to school physically and we're in the middle of a national or international reckoning with racism And so I don't know if educators are quite prepared for what students are gonna bring back with them come September, because this is trying to continue business as usual under a very unusual set of circumstances. And so when we have this conversation around anti-racism, I also think that students of this generation are much more equipped and have more robust language to discuss social justice. Um, I think they're able and feel more comfortable in naming mm. different types of violences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and students also know how to organize. Students know how to organize now. They are from the generation that can make campaigns on social media. Um, so I'm intrigued to see how institutional definitions of anti-racism get deployed against a more hyper-aware and hyper-connected group of students. Um, and I think that people in power do feel discomfort. Um, I think that when we say the word discomfort, we're actually discussing like who and power or who in society who wields power, how will they feel when we start to have discussions that implicate them. Right. I think like we, I think there's, there's some things, there's some language that is communicating something that we all know. Um, but are afraid to name explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's going to come up a lot. And I again think of that example that I raised earlier of that group of, of young children that were, that expressed racism towards another child where that child you could see her body language kind of shrivel up and she felt really small right. and they moved on with the rest of the like activities that they were doing so if a child that young is young enough to know and experience racism then I think like younger students in the k-12 system are young enough to learn about it and how to engage with it and like that's another part of the discomfort conversation like parents are like well they're too young they don't know but they do know because they're being racist to their classmates
0: right and then with that too it's also an awareness piece for an educator if they are witnessing that happening in front of them too And what they Mm -hmm. can then do to talk about that conversation to then, you know, support students within that situation too, because that's also very key. And that's the educational, that's the, that's what we call in the biz, the, uh, the ability to have a teachable moment. And it's a very beautiful Mm -hmm. moment to actually have with your students. And you get to understand them a little bit more deeply if that conflict resolution goes through in a very, good way and that good way being that all perspectives are heard everyone is included within that conversation uh, of folks that it actually affected which could honestly be a whole classroom conversation as long as there's ways to hold it in a good space in a safe space and in a very respectful way and i think it's very possible Uh, and that's again the the social justice almost happening within the classroom is to talk about these actions that we might subconsciously do and enact on it. And that is then perpetuating race- racism. And now we have the tools, we have the ability to name it. So then how can then we then do that effectively in a good nature? And that teachable moment really does need to be considered for educators to actually enact on and to take time class Mm -hmm. time and it's okay to do that too the class time to be able to to work through it together with your students Mm -hmm. so then with that notion too of feeling discomfort and folks really wanting to include this within their curriculum within their pedagogy uh, pedagogy meaning like your ability to put your theory into action And that action is the way you lead your lessons, the way you lead your classroom dynamic, your uh, classroom environment, uh, the climate. So it's it's, it's alluding to that. So that's what pedagogy means. So with that, how can we then, like educators in themselves, like feel, how can they work towards getting to that point of feeling comfort within that discomfort?
1: I think that there's, I think you're right, because you really I think teachers need to unpack and undo and unlearn. And I also think that this article implicates the entire process of teacher training. Um, And it also names the fact that like a lot of teachers are from middle class white backgrounds. And so they might not be able to relate to the students lived experiences in the schools that they end up working in, which I think is another important dynamic. So maybe there's a conversation to be had about how you recruit and retain racialized educators. Um, And maybe there's a conversation to be had about hiring practices and how the schools need to be representative of the communities that they're situated in. Mm -hmm. Um, That that might be another conversation of of social justice, because it really needs to be at the point if if educators are going to make sure that they're not failing students, they need to work through their discomfort before they're in front of a whole classroom of kids or of students. Um, They just the the whole notion of being like uncomfortable in the classroom itself is where you are now in a place where you're unable to guarantee safety Mm -hmm. for racialized students in your classroom. And when we do have those conversations about racism, it needs to be had in a way that doesn't draw undue attention to racialized students or end up positioning them as as educators without their consent. I think there are ways for students to provide education to other students, but things like exposure um within the classroom is just not enough to create tolerance i think it's about it's not just the presence of mm-hmm. racialized people it's like how you are engaging with them when you are in different spaces um again it's that whole principle of ethical relationality um and and <laughs> and and engaging with each other empathetically um and actually seeing and humanizing each other in the classroom and i think like there's notions of the whole question of inclusivity, which is another word, um, another word, uh, buzzword that gets used. Um, I think people do use inclusive practices. Um, Some inclusive practices are anti-racist, but not all of the anti-racist teaching practices look inclusive when we might have to engage different students in different ways in order for them to actually be fully present right. and accepted and and have space held for them in a classroom.
0: Right. Cause I know that there's a lot of um w- sorry, one, I love how you bring up ethical rationality because it's honestly one of my favorite um perspectives, frameworks, conceptual ideas to actually go about our interactions in the world around us. And what ethical mm-hmm. relationality is, is actually, uh, it's, it's this notion by Dwayne Donald, which is a Cree researcher here um, on Treaty 6 territory, uh, just just above me. And with that idea, it's talking about how two perspectives can be acknowledged as such and how they can still work together in a way, in a respectful, mutual way to then move forward together in collaboration, partnership and in, with good intentions, which is the framework in itself. So with that as well, it's, it's making me think about ways in which teachers can then create lessons and curriculum uh, considerations or interpretations even within the classroom. And for example, there's there's something that I remember learning about. I think it was within one of our classrooms together, actually, Diana. And it was talking about how the family tree lesson might not actually be one of the best lessons to maybe do with your whole classroom because you don't really know, you know, firsthandedly what your students' perspectives, experiences, background might potentially be, and it could create you know really difficult negotiations with being able to then actually um implement and actually do the project for themselves for that discovery piece so it's it could maybe be you know formatted to maybe think about you know the relationality to each of the students to each other you know that could mm-hmm. be a consideration of moderation um or you know inclusion of actually talking about ancestral lands we are all on, that could be another way, and how everyone has come in contact uh, with the lands here (laughs) is that it's just really important for folks to really be very uh, thoughtful and ethically relational with their uh, lessons that they're going to create, with their partnerships they're going to create, and really think about who who their audience is, who their students are at the core and really take the time to also get to know their students too because that's also a major piece with with the relationality with the relationship building.
1: Mhm. I think that's a really interesting point that you raise when you're talking about who we're forming partnerships with and like who we are exposing children or students generally in the K to 12 system to. And I think that's a really relevant conversation with everything that is going on Um, with me to we and how much of a presence they had in Canadian schools even with curriculum building with regards to water and indigenous peoples on these lands um, and thinking about lack of consultation and relationship building that might have gone into that material and that subject matter Um, and that curriculum didn't make it um, to the end point. But I think like, that's another way where we discuss ethical relationality and our relationship to like hyper uh, consumption and, and social justice cultures that might end up being harmful right. for students.
0: Absolutely. And it's then being critical of the resources you're bringing in, the organizations you're collaborating with, partnering with, mm-hmm. and really taking the Deep end, I guess, of research of actually understanding how these organizations have come to be. one of my other podcasts. Uh, her name is Ashley Dion, and she really talked about the non for profit organizations and how they hold uh, a form of incorporation to where they actually get money in some capacity. Where organizations like me to we like We Day, in itself could be and is an incorporation in itself where they do get a lot of finances through their programming, which lures, you know, the students, the children to then be a part of and they feel good about being a part of it because of their mission mm-hmm. and what they're actually doing. But now we're seeing from it is the bad end of it, unfortunately which is the limitations of the organization itself. So it actually causes more of that critical piece. And if only you know that critical piece could have happened at the beginning of these relationships, where you're really looking into it and you're being honest and you're being truthful of your intentions. And that's where that key notion of relationship building actually does come from. It's just being truthful mm-hmm. and just being honest and upfront about what your goal actually is. So, it really is a, honestly, a really good learning experience that I hope a lot of students are considering too, and and throughout the K to twelve, or even post K to twelve too, because there's some times where even I was uh, a volunteer photographer for their wee days, uh, even post grad. So even finding out the information that I am now, I'm very content because in a way it's a new learning opportunity for me to then be Mm -hmm. like wow okay I should have done this before I did this so Mm -hmm. it's that piece of the of the puzzle so yeah thank you thank you for bringing that example up actually I really appreciate that no worries (laughs) and it's very timely and it's really good to be critical right now Mm mm-hmm Wonderful, and Diana, with our last question here, okay, it is: How can we enact social justice and anti-oppression within our lives, especially for what is ongoing in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and within the Truth and Reconciliation uh, calls to action, and you know the enactment of of such, and you know being really thoughtful with our practices right now.
1: That's an amazing question. And I think just a very simple answer for me and in terms of my positionality is Black-Indigenous solidarity. Um, I think that, for example, in terms of direct action in Ottawa, where I am usually located um, temporarily outside of right now, um, Black and Indigenous folks in the city and activist spaces, for example, tend to show up to one another's actions and events Mm -hmm. I also think that um having conversation I think is the first first step because I think we do discount the power of conversation um and I also think that like I I think conversations are important in terms of bringing everybody up to speed because I do think that There are multiple conversations happening right now that look like the same conversation, but not everybody is saying the same things. Um, And so doing the reflexive work that you need to do as an individual to get up to speed, whether that is joining a reading group or starting a discussion group, which is something that I actually did with a group of friends and some younger folks where we just talk through things. That's a way where we can hold space for each other to make sure that our community members get up to where they need to be um, in terms of making things accessible. Because what good is the education that I just got if I don't bring it to other mm-hmm. people um, and, and make it accessible for other folks? I think within our own lives, for for those of you who have more financial and material resources, sometimes it's for the best to just Pay attention. If you're someone who's on Twitter or social media, for example, like donating to GoFundMes or grassroots organizations is really important. I do think that getting away from the nonprofit industrial complex and actually finding ways to tangibly support Black and Indigenous people who might be crowdfunding, who might be housing insecure, for example, um, and finding ways to provide actual material resources in the form of money or food or any any other requested ways is a way to actually show up. Um, and I also think, for example, if you are if you are in a position to kind of do research for whatever groups are working locally, I think that that is important because oppression is everywhere. It's a borderless thing. So finding ways to be present in your local communities um if you are somebody who's tied to any types of organizations like figuring out what your organization's like commitment to racial justice actually looks like especially if you're a well resourced organization or group of people is incredibly important like are there any things that you are actively a part of that actually might be a barrier to somebody Mm -hmm. else's ability to thrive Mm -hmm. so that those are those are some tangible ways on top of the actual reading and reflecting donating is a big thing and and showing up if there are direct actions in your city like for example I like to use the example of if you are in uh because I'm not a vehicle owner or a driver and I'm more likely to be the person blocking an intersection than to be the person inconvenienced by this act of protest but I feel like if you are that person who your day gets completely destroyed because there's a group of people blocking an intersection, it's a good reflexive exercise to deal with that, those feelings of discomfort in that moment and maybe do research. We all, for the most part, have smartphones. Um, do research and understand just how bad and dire a situation has to be for people to raise attention to an issue in a way that inconveniences you. So. Yeah, I think that's how social justice and anti-oppression can look within our own lives. And if you see any online trainings um, or, you know, people who do social justice education, like connecting with them, paying them to Mm -hmm. be in the spaces Mm -hmm. and educate folks is really important. Um, I know, for example, just in terms of my own professional work, like I do social justice education and that is dealing with a lot of people's discomfort and resistance and pushback, which was a theme um, in the article. Um, But ultimately, I think we're all better for, for getting to the other side of those uncomfortable feelings. So yeah, that's everything for me.
0: That's beautiful. And I think that's such a wonderful notion to really think about because it is through the discomfort where we really do learn the most about ourselves and really grow as individuals and that's what this article is all about too is really talking about that deeper connection to yourself to then unlearn in order to learn more and it's being critical Mm -hmm. of what we are looking at the systems that we are working within the spaces we hold the privileges we own as well and being able to then use it to actually support other folks within the capacities that we're able to and really having that good critical lens of being able to do so in respective means, in mutual means and throughout, through partnerships. So I think mm-hmm. that's really key and thank you very much for, for being able to do, raise those wonderful you know, additions for folks to really think about and to also potentially do within their own lives, especially if they do have the ability to do so. I also agree um, that donating is fabulous, especially to grassroots organizations as well and Mm -hmm. also uh, contribute to uh, writing to your MLA, talk to your MLA about how you're feeling Mm -hmm. actually want to hear from you. Uh, (laughs) They legally have to uh, hear from you as well. As with every single letter you actually write, they have to open it. It is their legal and their duty, it is their civic duty to actually open that letter and hear from you and read your voice. So think about it through that lens too, as these are the elected officials in some capacity, they have been elected, for you to then talk to and for them to hear from you. So that's really a good outlet too, if if you are wanting to really go through that process. And now it's accessible too, or you can email as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Diana, thank you truly so much from the bottom of my heart for being able to join me today. And Thanks for having me. Oh, it's just, you are truly just amazing. I am just a little speechless by the amount of knowledge you hold and the amount of knowledge you're willing to share as well. And I think it's really beautiful, especially in regards to education. So thank you truly so much from the bottom of my heart and being able to join me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you again so much, Diana. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone listening has an absolutely fabulous night. Make good choices. And I'll see you all next time.
1: (laughs) All right. bye. Bye.